according to His promise. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a battery. According, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, where our growth will come through the Scriptures this morning. Luke 8, 1 through 3. We're examining uh, another one of the Galilean tours. He made several, the majority of which are not recorded for us in Scripture, but even in, in the midst of the ones that are recorded for us in Scripture, we realize that the Galilean ministry was the longest portion of his uh, ministry during the three and a half years. And uh, we find elements from this episode and other episodes that we know are common. In other words, they're typical. They're not to be limited just to this event in these verses, but they were standard uh, operating procedures for a variety of his travels. Uh, in particular, we're examining the nature of uh, the twelve and the nature of the uh, the women that are mentioned here. And we'll see that these are patterns not only for this particular journey, but uh, from this point forward throughout the remainder of his earthly ministry. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each believer is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come humbly before your throne of grace this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of assembling together in the name of Jesus Christ and receiving instruction. Father, we uh, thank you for the privilege we have, the freedom we have in this nation. Uh, there's so many places around the world that believers cannot meet uh, openly in daylight hours, and yet here we are, Father, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your day-by-day -day mercies that uh, even... The events and circumstances that catch us by surprise, Father, they are no surprise to you. They've been uh, part of your plan since before the foundation of the world, and we rejoice in, in being a part of that grace eternal plan of the ages. Father, we pray that our services today would be pleasing in your sight, that they would bring glory to our Savior. Ask that through the ministry of your word, we would be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is another tour of Galilee, episode 23. I anticipate wrapping that up this morning and moving on and gaining new ground next week. Um, we had a little bit of fun with it last week. If you missed it, we got a little wild with our peas, but that's okay. This stage of the Lord's ministry featured a pricey peregrination. You know what a peregrine is? That's a walkabout, or a peregrination as a noun form of it. Uh, peregrine being, strictly speaking, an adjective. You know, there are so many dialects of English beyond the American English. It's staggering. But a pricey peregrination. And we stop to consider the fact that at various stages of ministry, whether it's the Lord's ministry or the Apostles' ministry or our ministry and so forth, uh, different doors will open, different opportunities will present themselves. And if they appear to be expensive at the outset, uh, we want to be very... Uh, we want to remain faithful before the Lord and say, well, Lord, if this is you, if you're the one opening the door, then you're the one that's got to pay for it. And that's the best part. What we don't want to do is in, in weakness of faith or in lack of faith or doubting, uh, look at a ministry opportunity and then just hang our heads and say, oh, well, we could never afford that. Or we would never uh, we would never be on the radio, for example, or we uh, were limited by the size of our building or the, the confines of our parking lot or things like that. This episode and many other episodes with the Lord and with the apostles throughout the book of Acts, 
demonstrate that when he opens the door, he does make the provision. And that's the, uh, that's the faithfulness we can claim because he is the head of the church and uh, these things are his to accomplish, not ours. So here comes this ministry and this traveling is expensive. And when you add 12 disciples, what did you just do to your budget? All right. You know, it's one thing if the Lord's traveling from place to place and he needs food and he needs a place to sleep and you've got to make those kind of arrangements. Uh, but now you add 12 disciples and you've just exploded your, your traveling uh, budget 12-fold or 13-fold and so forth. And then these women. And uh, we have three of the, four of them here by name, Mary, Joanna, uh, choose, uh, uh, I guess three of them by name. Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, but then we're told in verse 3 that there were many others. Well, how many? We don't know how many, but many is, is not just one or two or not just a few, but many others. So uh, anyway, we, there's, there's more guesswork than, than facts at this point, but we should at least observe what we can observe and draw the conclusions we can based upon what we know. All right, so it's pricey. But the Father uh, commanded it, and, and Christ is saying faithful, and provision is there. And that's a pattern for us to, uh, to learn from. The primary verb here is walk around or go around. Uh, and we did the word study last week on dio duo, D-I-O-D-E-U-O, dio duo. As it is an imperfect, it does stress continuous action in past time so that this was not just a single journey, but it was a series of journeys. It was um, many journeys uh, over a period of time. He began, and the word began is in italics, and what they're trying to do is they're trying in English to bring across the nature of this imperfect indicative, uh, but he was going around from one city and village to another, from city to village. In other words, it was a thorough exhaustive series of journeys. It was comprehensive, hitting every city, every village, and, uh, and so forth. Only twice that this verb is used in the New Testament, but 20 times the Septuagint made it quite interesting. And I thought that the parallels between Abraham and Jesus Christ here were extraordinary. Abraham was commanded to do this. And Abraham walked about. He walked throughout. He toured the land of promise, the land that God was giving him. And yet he never in his life received it as a possession. The pattern there, though, Jesus Christ toured it. He has still not yet received it as a possession. He's presently seated at the Father's right hand until the Father makes his enemies a footstool. And uh, the Lord, in fact, was... Abraham at least had possessions that he purchased with cash. He had a cave that he purchased to bury his wife and other uh, land that he uh, made financial uh, agreements to occupy. Uh, where he pitched a tent and he dug a well and at least he settled down. The Lord didn't even have that. As we're told that the foxes have their holes, the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. So both with Abraham and with Jesus Christ, they are the rightful possessors of the land, but they were not yet in possession of the land by virtue of their humility and by virtue of their willingness to accept the Father's timing. I find that extraordinary because you and I, obviously, well, okay, I'll speak for myself, uh, uh, I'm horribly impatient. And if, if, if it should be mine and he's promised it to me, well, then it's mine right now. Why, why wait? See, that's humanity speaking, of course. God's timing, though, is not always right now. <laughs> that's our, the weakness of our 21st century American approach to the, white now, uh, to the right now. We've got to have it now. Everything microwaved and everything uh, the way that it is. All right. The uh, 
Bob, would you mind stepping back there and letting her know that we don't have nursery this morning? She may not be aware of that. Thank you, sir. Sounds like a good uh, responsibility for the assistant pastor. All right. I saw a great cartoon the other day. It was a, an older pastor and an assistant pastor, and they're sitting in the pastor's office, and he says, all right, they're dividing up sermons for the year, and he says, I'm going to do Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, and Easter. You can handle, and then he started listing some real difficult, you know, the role of women in the church, uh, predestination, uh, you know, a bunch of real controversial topics, and the, and the assistant pastor, his eyes are just real wide. I, mean, I found it found it funny. So we did the uh, word study on the verb dio duo. We also examined the interesting syntax of this uh, phrase here, according to city and village, from city to village, and the interesting use of kata plus the accusative there in that regard, from city to village, from every polis to every kome. And we're used to polis, that's where we get political. Uh, a city is a polis. And, uh, but from every city to every village, we get the thorough nature of, the, of these journeys. That he wasn't just hitting the cities, he wasn't just hitting the big venues. In other words, he wasn't just uh, limiting himself. You know, there's certain groups, uh, Gentry can tell us this, there's certain groups that they're not going to come into a place unless it has a certain uh, minimum uh, you know, seating or a minimum booking or something. They're not going to go to a real t- uh, small venue, for example. But he hit every city, every village. And that, uh, that's a pattern there as well that many uh, missionaries to this day follow. I think uh, village ministries made it their burden because so many other missionaries, they'd go to a country, but where do they stay? The capital city, large urban areas. Village ministries said, you know what, we're going to go out to the, to the boonies. We're going to go up to the villages. We're going to go to the hilltops. And they're finding places. They continue to find places that have never to this day seen a white man, seen a, seen a, a Christian missionary. Because so many of these other organizations are limited to the big capital cities and the developed urban areas. Anyway, there was uh, work on that we did a week ago. Then we left off with the participles. Everything here in this verse, in verse 1, keys off of two participles. The primary verb is the, uh, the, the duo that he, he went around, that he, he traveled from place to place. But there's two participles there that define what he was doing while he was going from place to place. And that becomes the impact of the ministry. So under point four, again, we went wild with the peas because we have a pair of present participles. As soon as I saw a pair of present participles, I got excited. What is this pair of present participles doing? Well, it's portraying the precise promulgation practiced in this pricey peregrination. That's what this pair of present participles is doing. What's he doing? He's proclaiming and preaching. He's proclaiming and preaching. Uh, why is it that the Great Commission has that, in English, that great emphasis on go? You know, how many sermons have you heard where somebody goes to Matthew 28 and, and it says, go therefore into all the nations? And, and how many times have you seen the emphasis placed on go? As if that was a verb. As if it was an imperative. It's not even an imperative. It's a participle. The, the primary uh, imperative of the Great Commission is make disciples. All right? If you're not familiar with that, you ought to be. Everybody's, <laughs> everybody's familiar with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, it's the last paragraph in the Gospel of Matthew. But if all you're doing is reading it in the English, 
word go is the first word of verse 19. But it stems out of the authority that Christ has in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, as you go, describing the attendant circumstances of the heiress participle, having gone, or as you go, wherever you go, make disciples. That's the imperative. The imperative of this whole paragraph is make disciples. And then we have present participles, baptizing them and teaching them. From verse 19 to verse 20. So you've got a primary verb and you've got twin participles that describe the attendant activity. Same thing that we have here in this text. We want to identify what is the imperative verb or what is the primary verb and then what are the participles that describe the attendant activity. He's proclaiming and he's bringing good news. Keruso and euangelizo. And as I said, I think every believer ought to have about 25 to 30 Greek words, even if you're not learning Greek. At least you have vocabulary that you will recognize and the, and the significance and impact of that vocabulary. And these two ought to be on anybody's shortlist, whether it's 15, 25, 30, however many Greek words you're learning. Que Russo, to preach, to be a herald, we're all commanded, not just the pastors, not just the quote-unquote preachers. We use the word preacher to refer to, you know, reverend so-and-so. You know, somebody's got Rev in front of his name. He's, well, he's a preacher. No, we're all preachers. Every single one of us is expected to be a herald because we're all ambassadors for Christ. We should be willing to stand in the town square and say, hear ye, hear ye, here's the proclamation from the king. So the keruso, or the kerux is the noun, but the verb keruso, to make an official announcement, announce, make known, be an official herald. Consider throughout the ancient world and throughout the medieval world when you have a population, a percentage of which is going to be illiterate. What good does it do to post a notice if they can't read the notice that's posted? So in addition to posting a written notice, you, had, you employed these heralds that would then announce it verbally in a language that the, the population would understand. That's what we're here for. The world we minister to is illiterate. Spiritually speaking. And we're here to herald the tidings, and that's exactly what the Lord was doing here. So the two verbs, keruso and euangelizo, to bring good news, this is, uh, these are the twin activities that define what he was doing while he was going from place to place. See, the, if you're not accomplishing the activity, there's no point to going. The impact isn't on going, it's on what he was doing while he was going. It's tragic how many of these, again, missionary organizations, they emphasize going, but then what are the people doing when they get there? That's why I love VMI, I love Jim Myers, I love uh, the impact of what uh, Steve Arnold's doing there in, in, in Tulsa. They're not just arranging a Christian travel agency where you, you, know, you go to a country somewhere and sightsee. When you get there, you're going to be working. You're going to be giving the gospel. You're going to, there's, there's going to be actual ministry you're expected to partake in. When you get there. Finally, the pro proclamation and the good news centers on a subject. The object of these two participles. What was he proclaiming? What was he preaching? The object is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This text, kingdom of God. Terms are used interchangeably in many places. The basileon to the kingdom of God. This is what he proclaimed and this is what he preached. It's the same object of, vo of both participles. Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and preaching 
the kingdom of God. This was a common theme. It should continue to be our theme as well, by the way. We see the, the kingdom of God is a message that's not limited to the Gospels. It is found in the book of Acts. It is a ministry of the apostles throughout the book of Acts, even to the end of the book of Acts. All right. I've had others tell me that, well, you know, it shouldn't really be a church age emphasis because uh, because of all the, the problems with uh, all millennial theology, all the problems with these people trying to bring the kingdom in through human effort. Well, now, wait a minute. We can acknowledge that that's a problem. But let's not go overboard the other direction and say, okay, well, because we don't want to fall into this trap of bringing the kingdom in through human effort, we don't even want to mention that there is a kingdom. That's overboard. Because we are to be preaching and proclaiming the kingdom, and by virtue of, well, how do you get into that kingdom? Unless a man is born again, he shall not see what? The kingdom. The gospel message is a kingdom message. And if we don't confuse things with trying to bring in a kingdom on earth, we realize that the kingdom is presently in heaven until the king arrives and sets up that kingdom on earth. I think we can have a balance. All right. Now, those are the first four points of study. There's three more we want to get out of this uh, passage before we move on. Number five. Let's remind ourselves what we talk about with the twelve. Who are the twelve? Hoi Dodica. Can you name the twelve? There's an interesting exercise. I challenged you to do this. We did a whole series of messages on the 12 when we had them listed in their dodecapostologues, in the listing of the 12 apostles. And you find a list. Where do you find the listing of the 12 apostles? You find one in Matthew chapter 10. You find one in Luke. You find one in Acts chapter 1. All right, the listing of the 12 apostles. The 12 were with him. Again, we like to have more information than we do. We have a limited amount. The rest of it's kind of guesswork. Uh, we know how the fishermen were called because we have the scripture that defines that. Jesus sees them in the boat. He passes by, says, follow me. You shall be fishers of men. We know how the tax collector was called because we have scripture that describes that. He walks by the booth and says, follow me. And Matthew leaves his tax booth and follows Christ. All right. There's others, though, that we don't know. It'd be really interesting to know where he found Judas. <laughs> it would be great to have a, a scripture that describes the Lord passing through the village of Iscariot and, uh, and obtaining a, a disciple there by the name of Judas. But we don't have that story. He's just simply here when the, uh, when the twelve are selected. Likewise, there's uh, more of the obscure ones. We just don't know. James the Less and Simon the Zealot. Where do these guys come from? We don't have an explicit passage that defines or describes how they were added to the apostles. Now, these twelve are called the twelve. That is a title for them. Not only here, but throughout uh, the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts, and even into Revelation. So we've got to be clear that this is a group of apostles. I'm going to give you some notes on it. First of all, and before I give you the subpoints, let's just the easiest one for me to find is Matthew 10. I know there's a Luke parallel, I know there's Acts, but Matthew chapter 10. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. Now we had more than that, but these were specifically the ones that he summoned, the ones that he chose. 
and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now he gives this authority to all 12 of them, including the unbeliever. And remember, he's not giving them a spiritual gift because the church hasn't started yet. He's giving them authority. He's giving them power. This is all in an Old Testament context. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. So, in verse 1, they're disciples. In verse 2, they are apostles. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Remember when we did the Dodecapostologues, we showed you the features of these lists. That these first four are always the first four. Sometimes they're in different orders, but they're always the first four. All right? They're always the first four. Ethel, you know who she is, right? Okay. She's Jim Eustace's sister. So don't worry about it. (laughs) Always got to keep track of who's coming in. All right. The, uh, the four, these first four are always the first four, even though sometimes they're in different orders. Uh, primarily, Andrew gets moved up and moved down. Here he's right after Peter. In other lists, he, he comes after James and John. But Peter, Andrew, James, and John are always the first four in every list. And Peter is always the first of those four in every list. All right? Now, the next group of four, the uh, Simon, I'm sorry, Uh, Verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. They're always the next group of four. The order is sometimes different, but even when the order is different, Philip is always the first out of that group of four. And then uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. That's the final group of four. Uh, Again, the order is always different, is often different. However, James is always first and Judas is always last every time the listing of the twelve is given. All right, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. The, the noun apostle means one that who is sent. The verb apostello is to send forth. And so these are the 12 that he sent forth to represent him with his uh, representative authority. So there's the 12. Uh, I will point out over in Acts, let's look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Remember, where does the church begin? Church begins in Acts chapter 2. Okay? That is significant as the Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost and and, uh, believers are transferred out of the dispensation of Israel and ushered into the body of Christ. Uh, But in chapter 1... Verse 15 says, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren and gathering about 120 persons was there uh, together and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. See, who wrote the Psalms? Well, the human being tool was David, but the Holy Spirit was the one inspiring the scriptures. It's a great passage that helps us to understand verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. So uh, the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. See, each one of us is expected to minister, and each one of us has a ministry. And even Judas, the unbeliever, had a ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. 
Remember, he was a thief. He was the treasurer. He was stealing money and actually was able to purchase some real estate because of it. Uh, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Yuck. Yeah, tragic end. And uh, it's the kind of verse you want to read right before lunch, you know, where we, I don't know where we're going after class, but no, I'm teasing. But now notice, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. That's a verse that's sometimes quoted in modern political uh, discourse, you know, where we're commanded to pray for kings and all who are in authority. And some people like to uh, apply that verse if the president happens to be of their political persuasion. Uh, they struggle with it if the president happens to be opposed to their political persuasion. And they say, well, you know, you're commanded to pray for your leaders, whether or not you agree with them. And some people try to get around that and say, well, I'll pray this prayer then. Let his days be few and let another take his office. No, that's not the prayer we're supposed to offer. We're supposed to pray, I pray for their salvation, pray for their blessing, pray for their growth. Now notice, verse 21, therefore it is necessary. It is necessary. This is a have to. It's not a want to, it's a have to. It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there's a have to, and it's the language of necessity here. Now, it's, it's remarkable because part of what we don't know is how many more were there that qualified, that traveled with Jesus from baptism to resurrection. They put forth two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. We don't have any clue of either of these men in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is not a hint of either man, either man in the four gospel records. But how many more were there? Because there was evidently, there was a group of men that qualified, that witnessed the ministry of Christ from baptism to resurrection. And out of that group, however many that might have been, they picked two and said, one of these two is going to take Judas's place. And so they prayed and they said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. This is so vital. Now, the church hasn't started yet, but we have a principle here that ought to be vital in decisions that churches come to. It's not what do we choose when we hold a church vote. You tally up the record. All right. The question is, what has Jesus Christ chosen? Because he is the head of the church. All right. What has Jesus Christ chosen? And we ought to be prayerfully seeking, well, what has he chosen? What is his will? We ought to be considering what God the Father's will is uh, and based upon that, what Jesus Christ has then already chosen to do. And we want to line ourselves up consistently with what Christ is doing as the head of the church, as the head of this local church. So they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship. Now that's a noun form that recognizes the office more than the gift or more than the individual. The person has a gift, and so he's, he has the gift of apostle, but then he also has the office of apostle. And this, uh, in verse 25, is recognizing the office of apostle, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And keep in mind, none of these guys yet have the gift. 
Church hasn't started yet. There are no spiritual gifts at this point in time. But they have the office of apostleship. From which Judas turned aside. He was in the office and he walked away to go to his own place. If that doesn't get into advanced angelology, I don't know what does. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Added to the eleven apostles. That phrase, added to the eleven apostles, tells us what? That the significance of the twelve was vital. And because it was one short, it must. Notice the language of necessity. It is necessary in verse 21. Uh, One of these must become a witness with us in verse 22. There was a necessity to maintain that number as 12. And Paul is not apostle number 12. All right. There are other apostles beyond the 12, but the 12 are significant. And we see the qualifications here. The 12, not every apostle, not Paul, not Barnabas, not uh, others that became apostles in the church age, that they were church age apostles, but these apostles in the dispensation of Israel must have been eyewitnesses of everything from baptism to resurrection. All right. So they drew lots for them and a lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. But anyway, I just wanted to highlight that. Let's get some of these sub points now. These particular disciples became the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They became the twelve apostles of the Lamb. They have that title in Revelation 21.14. Revelation 21.14, if you want to look at it there. They have the title, Twelve Apostles of the Lamb. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get to Revelation 21. These particular disciples became the twelve apostles of the Lamb. When the new Jerusalem descends, we get a description of it here. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me in the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. John's not there physically, but he's there spiritually. He gets to travel outside of time and space like Ezekiel got to do his travels outside of time and space. And he gets to see the city. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gate twelve angels. And names are written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. The, uh, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And on the wall of the city, I'm sorry, the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So when Judas departed, when Judas forsook his office, when Judas died as an unbeliever and went to hell, all of a sudden now we've got 11 names. It was necessary for a 12th apostle to be named. And it's before the church. These 12 apostles were apostles in the dispensation of Israel. They, of course, went on to become apostles in the church. After the day of Pentecost, they received the, Holy, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. They received the spiritual gift, the church-age spiritual gift of apostles. But they were also apostles from two dispensations. Is, is that clear? I mean, 
It should be obvious, but a lot of people don't think about it. You stop to consider what their reward is going to be. Because they will have gold, silver, and precious stones laid up at the judgment seat of Christ. They will receive church-age rewards. But consider they also laid up treasure in heaven as apostles of the Lamb in the Old Testament. As they will receive Jewish rewards as well as church-age rewards. All right. Secondly, unlike later apostles in the dispensation of the church, these men were placed in apostolic office during the dispensation of Israel. Unlike later apostles, Paul and Barnabas specifically. James, the brother of the Lord, was an apostle. But he was a church-age apostle. Wrote the book of James. He became the head of the church of Jerusalem. We see that in Acts chapter 15. But prior to that, he wasn't even saved. He wasn't even a believer. During the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, it wasn't until after the resurrection that James becomes a believer. And he was not added to the eleven. He does not become an apostle of the Lamb. Matthias was added to the eleven. James is not one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, but he is an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that clear. He is an apostle. Luke 6 and verse 13. Let me look at that. Luke 6. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. So in the dispensation of Israel, these men are given an office, an office that had not existed prior to this. And read through the whole Old Testament. You find prophets, you find judges, you find priests, you find scribes, you find all kinds of things. You don't find apostles until here. A unique office for a unique ministry during this unique age of the dispensation of Israel. And there's the listing of them there again. Same as we looked at in Matthew chapter 10. Same 12 men. The order might be a little different. And uh, we won't go through that again. But notice it is still the dispensation of Israel. Thirdly, these dispensation of Israel apostles will have an eschatological function with Israel. What's eschatology? End times. Eschatos, meaning last. The last days. End times. All right. These dispensation of Israel apostles will have an eschatological function with Israel. Matthew 19:28, Luke 22:30. They're both identical. I'll just grab Matthew 19:28. There are parallel accounts in the two gospels here. He's talking about the rich man, and the rich man was a uh, rich young ruler here, thought he'd done everything to receive eternal life. And he says, no, you've got one more thing you need to do. <laughs> Keep in mind, if you're trying to work your way to glory through human effort and works, there's always one more thing you've got to do. <laughs> always. You can never earn eternal life. No one can. And whatever the issue is, we all fall short. And this man here was his wealth. And so there's this message, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were then astonished, who can be saved? 
Uh, but in verse 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Now, I don't know if usually people think that Peter was bragging there or there was some kind of self-pity or something going on. I don't know. You, you read a lot into that maybe. Um, but the answer here is what I want to drive at this morning. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me, you who have followed me, speaking to these twelve, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They will have an eschatological function and will be oriented towards Israel. Twelve thrones. All right. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. You know, this is a tremendous promise. There's, we don't we don't lose a lot in our culture if we accept Christ, but there are many other cultures that do. You know, think of uh, Ergen Cantor. Have you ever heard him? And the day he became a believer was the last day he ever saw his dad. Dad was a devout Sunni Muslim and uh, banished him from the family from that point forward. Cut out all the pictures of him. Uh, Ergen Cantor, the, we've, we've given out some CDs and things. We heard him in Dallas last December. Uh, Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist pastor in, in Virginia. Um, also the dean of, of Liberty University there in, in Virginia. But think about it. Think about uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Jewish, got, gets saved. His father holds a funeral because that child, that son is now dead. Say, as far as the Jews are concerned, and you accept Christ, you become a Christian. Well, if you've lost houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, and so forth, you gain that much more. Not only now, but for all eternity. See, we've got, I've got thousands and millions of brothers now and sisters and family members now. My, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Anyway, there's an eschatological function, and it is limited to 12. It is 12 thrones, 12 tribes. It is the role of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, those who held an apostolic office in the dispensation of Israel, in addition to, of course, their uh, role in the bride. Okay. That, hopefully, will sort some things out. Just to uh, tie together the loose end, I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Apostles beyond the twelve. Apostles beyond the twelve. Church age apostles. Now you may, you may hear other pastors that teach it differently, and and they got to teach it the way they understand it. But uh, I think it's clear that these twelve are not the only apostles, because obviously Paul's an apostle. No one disputes that. So they say, okay, he's the thirteenth, but there's no more beyond him. All right. Well, wait a minute. Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, Scripture indicates that there were additional apostles beyond the twelve, beyond Paul. I typically will name Barnabas, James, and Jude as explicit apostles, and I believe there were more. All right. Notice 1 Corinthians 15. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. And here it is. I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now notice. His appearances. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Okay, so Peter was the first apostle that was that was uh, appeared to, but then all the twelve were appeared to. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. See, this is a part of the nature of apologetics and demonstrating the faithfulness of the New Testament, how early it was written. What an, the fact that the eyewitnesses to the events are still alive when 1 Corinthians is being written. If, if this is a fraud, then how easy is it for the Corinthians or anybody to, to recognize that, that this whole book is a bunch of garbage? But the fact that Paul is citing all these witnesses who are still alive that can verify these things demonstrates the reliability of the, of the New Testament record. And then he appeared to James. That's his half-brother. The, uh, the resurrection appearance here, I believe, is part of the qualification for being an apostle. And James received the post-resurrection appearance. He was called as an apostle. Wrote the book of James. He's an author of a New Testament book. Another evidence of his apostleship. Then to all the apostles. Then to all the apostles. Now keep in mind, if we're going to limit the apostles simply to the twelve, then why is he speaking about the twelve in verse 5 and then James and all the apostles in verse 7? Well, the obvious answer is that there are additional apostles beyond the twelve. And last of all, keep in mind, last of all means what? Last of all. Okay? There, was, there were no more apostles called after Paul. So anybody looks at you today, if, you, if you, you've come, I've, I've done this, I've come face to face with people today in the 21st century that have claimed to be apostles. And I look at him, I say, that's unbelievable. You look marvelous for being over 2,000 years old. Because if you truly are an apostle, your calling came before the apostle Paul. Because this verse says, to la and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The final called apostle was Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, if you want to call him that. Last of all. Anyway, there were additional apostles. If for no other reason... If all there were were 12 or 13, okay, if, if you've got the 12 on Paul, well then, how in the world were all those false apostles posing as apostles? If all there are are 13 and we know them by name, somebody comes along and says, oh, I'm an apostle. Well, really, you're not Peter, Andrew, James, John, you know, Paul. If all there are are 13 apostles and everybody knows them because they're in the Bible, then <laughs> where are these false apostles coming from? And we know that there were many false apostles. No, all the evidence is that there were many apostles by gift and office in the early church. All right. That's it for the 12. We also have certain women. Under point six, certain women were also with him. Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others. Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others. I would love to take a full week on each of these women. Say this week will be all about Mary Magdalene. Next week will be all about Joanna. Week after that will be all about Susanna. But uh, there's just no material to teach anything about these women. <laughs> you know what we know about these women? What you just read there in Luke 8, 3. Okay. There is almost no other information to be found. So we talk about Mary. 
She was called Magdalene. Well, what does that mean? She was called Magdalene. Nobody knows other than the common guess that, well, there was a village, the Magdala village in Galilee. Hmm. This ministry took place throughout Galilee. Hmm. It would be like um, if we had Fred the Austinite. Well, what would we guess about Fred? Probably he's from Austin. He was born there, grew up there, lived there, uh, whatever. But if that's all we know, then we're just kind of guessing at that point, aren't we? Mary called Magdalene. That's all we know. We do know that she had demons cast out of her. Seven of them. What's the significance of that? Isn't one demon bad enough? (laughs) Well, we know that if a demon is cast out, and he travels through various waterless places, and then he returns, and he finds the house swept in order, he can come back with seven others, and in which case the the, the condition is worse than at the first. Um, We can speculate because of that that uh, she'd had a previous demonic episode, that she had been cured from that, uh, but then had been repossessed at a later point, had been cured from that, but then... Thankfully, praise the Lord, got saved to where she is now uh, protected from all demon possession. But a lot of that's guesswork, too. Aren't we just speculating at this point? Now, Catholic tradition through the years has identified her as the woman we studied back in verse 7. The prostitute that came, that anointed his feet, and did all that other stuff. There is no reason to identify the woman in verse eight, with the woman uh, in chapter eight, with the woman in chapter seven. In fact, there's every reason to do just the opposite, because she's being introduced here in chapter eight as a brand new character, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from from whom seven demons had gone out. It doesn't say Mary, who was the prostitute in chapter seven that anointed his feet with 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 oil. It doesn't say that. It introduces Mary here in chapter eight as if this is her first reference in the book. from whom seven demons had gone out. I, I, I stagger. It's just beyond belief to consider that Mary or any demonic woman would be uh, a prostitute. <laughs> I mean, look what the demoniacs are doing in the Gospels. Living in cemeteries and breaking chains and frothing in the mouth and throwing themselves in the fire. And, and uh, that's hardly enticing in promoting a career. Uh, profitable career there as a as a harlot maybe it maybe i'm weird i don't know all right what else do we know about her well what does dan brown know about her (laughs) all right this is it this is all we know now we do know that she was an eyewitness at the crucifixion so was joanna by the way uh, we do know that they were the women here were the first to the tomb. They went to uh, with their spices early Sunday morning, uh, found that the stone had been rolled away. We do know that the other women ran off, but Mary remained, and she was the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, but all of the remainder items that just sprang up and 
in uh, mythology and and uh, and all the rest that she married Jesus and they had babies and all that other evil garbage is uh, is just that it's a bunch of evil evil garbage. All right. We also have Joanna. What do we know about Joanna? The wife of Chusa. And who was Chusa? Herod Steward. Now there's a book of the Bible I'd like to see. <laughs> Give me more information on that. Herod. What an evil character he was. And yet, he has a steward. Now is the steward saved? We don't know. But the steward's wife clearly is. So there's a story there. We'd love to have it, but we don't. So I can't take a, a whole hour to give you the doctrine of Joanna. It's just not there. Or Susanna. What do we know about Susanna? Nothing. Her, uh, her name means Lily. You have a little girl named Lily from the Hebrew. That's from Shoshana. You know, in fact, we got it right here in this church. We've got a Susanna who had a daughter named Lily. What do you know? But we don't know anything about this Susanna. There's a book of the Apocrypha that's one of those spurious additions to Daniel about a Jewish uh, heroine named Susanna. But that has nothing to do with this Susanna, so who knows? And then we're told that there were many others, under point D, that there were many others. Now, these women are not yet members of the church. Obvious? Church doesn't start till when? Acts chapter 2, right. However, so they are not members of the church, not yet, they will be. They're not yet members of the church with a spiritual gift, but their ministry prefigures the dispensation of the church spiritual gift of server-minister. And I hope we can understand that. What are these women doing? Notice in verse 3, many others, and what were they doing? Contributing to their support out of their private means. Contributing to their support out of their private means. They were providing logistics. They were providing support. I'm going to give you a whole study on this. And we've got seven minutes to do it, so chances are we won't make it. <laughs> we'll have to do it next week. But all of the things that are needed in a ministry, any ministry, local church ministry today, needs logistical support. Uh, missionary work today needs logistical support. Is that, is that inferior? No. Is it earthly rather than spiritual? It's both. Yes, it's earthly. You know, when the, when the treasurer opens up a bill from the city of Austin and writes a check and puts it in the envelope and mails it off and he's paying bills, that seems kind of earthly, doesn't it? But it's also spiritual. It's a spiritual function. It's a part of the logistical support. It, it's laying up treasures in heaven. All right? As we understand it here. The... Um, Let's get a start on it. It's point seven. It's the last point we look at here. Christ was the one in ministry. The one in ministry. Notice, contributing to their support. Christ was the one in ministry. The twelve were in training. All of them were supported. It is their support. It is their support. Uh, actually, if we really wanted to tear into it, this is even a... Uh, a text issue. 
There are Greek manuscripts that limit the support to a singular that they were contributing to his support. But the majority of the Greek manuscripts make the pronoun there plural, contributing to their support. They were supported. We commented on that when they left their fishing business. We commented on that when they left their their uh, when Matthew left the tax booth. See, they were full time students in training for ministry. Nowadays, though, we don't do that. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, you don't get support until you're pastoring a church. Per se. If you're, uh, oftentimes, not even then. <laughs> church is too small, you're working outside the church. All right? But, you know, maybe the senior pastor supported, the assistant pastor is not. He works outside the church or what have you. But the student that's still in seminary who hopes to be a pastor someday, is he supported? Is he on staff? Is he being paid to be a seminary student? Typically not. But when uh, Jesus called these to be his disciples, they left their secular careers. And this is, uh, by the way, I think this is one of the brilliant points that Jim Myers is doing in Kiev. When it comes to the Bible college they have there in Kiev, when it comes to the students they have there in Kiev. And when I asked him, I said, well, what, what tuition do, uh, do these students pay to be in this Bible college? And he just kind of smiled. He says, we pay them. They're not paying tuition. We pay them. A worker is a laborer is worthy of their hire. Yes, they're students, but they're also in ministry. They're also in ministry. And they're going to be in ministry for the rest of their lives. They're learning now while they're still in training that those who preach the gospel earn their living by the gospel. And they're getting that pattern now. I, I just find that amazing. All right. Perhaps that day will come in Austin Bible Church. What did I say at the beginning of this hour? If the Lord opens the door, He's got to pay for it. <laughs> you open the door, Lord. How do you want this done? All right. But the women were providing logistical support, so they are in ministry themselves, aren't they? There is this the support ministry, but it is ministry. Now, vocabulary on this. I'm just going to throw them up there, let you write them down. We won't try to look at the verses. I'm going to do this uh, next week. And also I want to go back to some of the Old Testament context and see some of the things there. We'll spend some time on that next week as well. But the verb is diakoneo, to serve or to minister. And this is what they were doing. This is what he was doing. This is what we all do. But we do it in different ways. A pastor serves and ministers in a different way than an evangelist, but they both serve and minister. Somebody with a gift of help serves and ministers in a different way than a pastor, but they both serve and minister. Somebody with a gift of, uh, of ministry serves and ministers, but it could be in an entirely different way. See, so we'll deal with a lot of this, not only from the Gospel of Luke, where I think we get some great, um, very vivid descriptions, but then uh, we'll also talk about it from uh, the Old Testament view as well, where before Joshua was ever the leader of Israel, what was he? He was Moses' servant. And what better 
training than being a, uh, for being a leader than being a follower, being a servant. Because if he's not faithful as a, as a servant, what kind of leader is he going to be? If he's faithless in little things, will he be trusted in many things? And then the nature of property, possessions, private means, uh, the idiom there that's used is uh, how these women were not only funding their own travels, but also helping to uh, support these, uh, the Lord and his twelve. Uh, we'll have some more to say about that as well. A lot of references, and notice how many of them are in Luke and Acts. So uh, Dr. Luke obviously knows something about means and uh, finances and the issues there. But we also have in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Hebrews 10, 34. We'll get a study on that next week as well. Any questions before I close in prayer? Yes, ma'am. The twelve. They are a part of the bride because they are in Christ. Yeah. And when they transition across into the church, they become a part of the bride. No. No, because uh, several of them were brothers, and the brothers are going to come from the same tribe. And we know that, uh, yeah, we know that they're no, not foolish. It's, it's a great question. I've asked the question myself. Until it dawned on me, wait a minute, they're brothers. The brothers have to be from the same tribe. And uh, when you got pairs of brothers, that's what you end up with. But it's a good question. Most of them were Judean. Even though they lived in Galilee, they were from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah and, uh, and so forth. Any other questions? Great questions. Save them for tonight, though. We've got good questions coming up tonight. I've got a great question in the book of Ruth. And uh, I've got to email Warren to see if he can answer it. Because <laughs> I don't have an answer. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for... Thank you for your patience in teaching us and letting us learn and letting us grow and admitting that, yeah, there's things we just we don't have the answer. But we're going to keep learning. We're going to keep growing day by day and trusting that if uh, whatever the answer might be, you'll make it clear someday or you won't. Um, In glory, all things will become clear. So we thank you for that. Pray that uh, the ministry of your word would go forth. We thank you for the privilege we have here to. Uh, begin this pastor ministry workshop and the other training that's taking place, Greek, Hebrew, other uh, training taking place for men with spiritual gifts, women with spiritual gifts. Father, we look to you as you continue to provide open doors and uh, other things that we're looking at. It's in your hands, Father, and just pray that whatever else happens, uh, as, as people are added, as money is added, as other things are taking place, Father, uh, do not allow us to get fat-headed and prideful and boastful about about any of these things as if somehow we're the ones doing it father uh, we're not you are and we we glorify you because of it we thank you in jesus christ's name amen